Thanks again for coming. Um, this is the lecture about use and usefulness and what place we give them in our vocabularies for defending the humanities. Now, as you probably know, this is one of the most contentious, sort of bitterly fought areas of debate about the humanities. So what I'm going to do in the first half of the lecture is to talk about the changing disposition, I think, of advocates of the humanities towards the notion of instrumentalism, you know, the notion that what we do should have direct use value and that that use value should be trackable, measurable, perhaps. Um, and in the second half, I want to use Matthew Arnold. I'm going to make a case for what I'll call a modern Arnoldianism, which is not to do with the definition of culture, but it's to do with using Matthew Arnold as a kind of case study in how one might modify or regulate the place that you give to use value in, account, in an account of the value of the humanities. Okay, so let me start um, with the more general terrain of the debate. Now, the spectre of trial by proven utility has pretty much haunted universities um, since they came into existence. If you think about it under certain theological lights, a medieval college, which has as one of its criteria, its founding criteria, that the, um, that the teachers inside it should pray for the souls of its founders is just as use-directed as a modern university which has to contribute to the knowledge economy. But if you want an explicit opposition between economic usefulness and cultured uselessness as the structuring topos of the debate, Robert Young tells us that we need to go to Adam Smith's elaboration of a human capital theory of education in The Wealth of Nations, 1776. Smith held that universities should be subject to free market forces, okay? Because left to themselves, university teachers had no interest in respecting utility as an educational aim. And he pointed to the really terrible state of teaching in Oxford and Cambridge in the mid-18th century, where teachers no longer preparing the majority of their students for the ecclesiastical life taught only a few unconnected shreds and parcels of this corrupted course, and even these very negligently and superficially. Now, Robert Young, and I've given you the reference to his, um, to his essay and the further reading at the end of your accompanying material will be up on the website, the essay called The Idea of a Crestomathic University. Crestomathic University is taken from Bentham. The paradox, Robert Young observes, in, in Smith's free market attack on public educational institutions for the rich is that he nevertheless wanted to prescribe a kind of public education for the poor which would be more than simply useful since a merely instrumental education directed towards the needs of the labour market would, he thought, produce moral decline in the people you're educating. This is Smith. It's the first quotation I've given you. Smith, therefore, proposes that such education would involve what he terms the necessary introduction to the most sublime as well as to the most useful sciences. But what would be the use of a knowledge that is sublime in a scheme according to which everything must be justified by its usefulness? And so Smith draws himself into what in The Wealth of Nations looks like a straight contradiction between a constraining instrumentalism and a space consciously made for uselessness, a contradiction that Young suggests might now be made to work for the postmodern university as a kind of Derridean logic of the supplement. So the university already includes the excessive place of resistance to instrumentality that Derrida advocates. The university must then be permanently at variance with itself with the dissension produced by this dislocation acted out interminably in educational theory and practice. Now, that's an unusually subtle response to the spectre of a bluntly economic instrumentalism brought to bear on education. For reasons I'll come to later, I'm not entirely persuaded by that Derridean turn, but there's, I think, an immediate problem if you go back to Smith and look at his use of the term sublime. The preservation of a place and wealth of nations for sublime science doesn't, I think, produce quite the distinction that Robert Young wants, it to, wants to take from it, the distinction between usefulness and non-usefulness. If you go back to the, um, the earlier in the same chapter that Robert Young is talking about, 
Um, he gives a preliminary account, Smith gives a preliminary account of the ancient historical divisions of knowledge, and he makes it clear there that by sublime, he means to do with metaphysics. And as you'd expect, he's disparaging. He says too much of the attention in education has been given to the department of the sublime, especially in the form of theology, and too little to the more useful science. When he comes back to the word in the passage that Young's quoting, he deliberately gives it a more specific and provocatively untheological remit. He proposes to replace the useless little smattering in Latin which the children of the common people are sometimes taught with the one aspect of the conjectural sciences for which it's feasible to claim use value, that is, the elementary parts of geometry and mechanics for which a common trade will not, scarce a common trade will not afford some opportunities of application. So revised, the literary education of this rank of people, Smith concludes, would perhaps be as complete as it can be. So if you go back to a defence of the sublime in education on these grounds offers rather less of an opening to the humanities than Robert Young wants to discern. Indeed, it might rather reinforce the view that intransigent opposition to instrumentalism is the only viable response we can make to pressures in that direction from political economy. The belief that the humanities must be almost by definition at odds with instrumentalism has been a very potent strain in English thinking about the university and about culture more broadly. It runs through Newman, Mill, Arnold in the 19th century, and it continues with what sometimes looks like incremental ferocity through T.S. Eliot's insistence that readers of literature are bound to resist secularism's assumption that economic explanation should be primary, to Levis fulminating against a technologico-benthamite age, to Geoffrey Hill much more recently decrying technocratic angelism and plutocratic anarchy. In, for the most part, more secular terms than Hill's, anti-utilitarianism remains a strong strand in political arguments involving the purpose and the funding of universities today, and not just in the humanities. At the present moment, this anti-utilitarianism, now if you've been correct, that's a misnomer, it should strictly be anti-instrumentalism, has, vi has its most visible manifestation in the intense hostility generated by the criteria of impact or social benefit in the current government research <laughs> assessment exercise. And that hostility risks looking disproportionate. There is, I think, a, a real problem here. Are we seriously unwilling to concede that activities for which we receive public money should be partly assessed in terms of measurable benefits passed on to society? So when you get the full ball resistant to that, it, it ends up looking as if we simply think that we, it's special pleading, that we have some kind of right to be protected from uh, demonstrating our use of money in the way that others aren't. But I think that's probably putting the objection in the wrong place. What, I, what many, and I'm guessing most academics, object to isn't the idea that we should be useful, socially beneficial. What they're really objecting to is the very redu reductive variant of political economy that's dictating the terms of assessment. And that's fundamentally mistaking the nature and purpose of writing in the humanities, the arts, and the pure sciences. Having said that, there is, I think, notwithstanding, a hardcore anti-instrumentalist position, which is not uncommon and is not insignificant in the support that it commands. It goes further and it claims that social benefit is not the brief of universities and that the pursuit of knowledge and engagement in research has to be understood as mattering for its own sake and its own sake alone. So you have, if you like, two grades of anti-instrumentalism, a soft version and a hard version. And they've been part of the common parlance of debate about the idea and function of the university in the late 20th and 21st centuries. But if you look beyond the context or the genre of complaint, institutional complaint, I think the idea that we have to oppose the principle of economic usefulness is less prominent than it was. Some of the strongest responses to the perceived crisis in the humanities in the last two decades, including, and I gave you the references to these in the first lecture, John Guillory's Cultural Capital, Bill Reddings as the University in Ruins, and most recently Louis Luke Mann's The Marketplace of Ideas, 
They all recognise behind the rhetoric of anti-instrumentalism a response to large structural and political changes in the university and its relationship to the wider pu public culture. So for John Guillory, the cause of our current difficulties is a decline in the market value of humanities curricula, combined with the emergence of a techno-bureaucratic pro professional managerial class, in the presence of which humanities departments have come to seem economically and institutionally irrelevant. For Bill Reddings, bureaucratisation is a part of the explanation, but the loss of the university's cultural mission has deeper roots in global capitalism, that is, in the dislodging of the nationalist rationale of the Humboldtian University of Culture. I think I said something about this in the very first lecture. Tonally look at those two books, and they're strikingly, strikingly divergent. Guillory's calm, technical, rational, verging, verging on the austere. Reddings, and I think it's part of the attraction of his book, is with difficulty kept from the romantic poles of elegy and anarchism. But they are alike in seeing the pressure towards dem demonstrated economic usefulness as a false description of the problem. Reddings, I think, gives the best description, really. He's describing not a hostile instrumentalism so much as a situation in which judgments about usefulness are happening on the basis of an oddly crude understanding of what it means to work in the marketplace of ideas and language. If he's right, the problem isn't the market, but the distorted simulacrum of a market that forms the theatre of so much debate still about what academics and universities and culture are for. As he puts it, universities driven by performance indicators and dedication to a contentless excellence are not, as the familiar conservative line has it, experiencing exposure to market forces. What's actually occurring is the highly artificial creation of a fictional market that presumes exclusive government control of the funding. A version of the capitalist marketplace is mined with the necessary help of a virtual accounting mechanism. Excellence, excellence benchmarking, and he died before this term became part of the currency impact. That those of us who teach should be useful, above all that we should educate, is unobjectionable, but that we should agree to subject ourselves to a form of political economic instrumentalism that deforms the goods it seeks to make use of seems to most people in the humanities a position to be profoundly resisted. Luke Menand's recent contribution to the debate from the combined perspectives of intellectual history and literary criticism is comparatively, if cautiously, optimistic. The marketplace of ideas gives a more specific intellectual and political genealogy to the changes within institutions of higher education that have produced the current crisis in the humanities. Remember, he's writing of America, but I think the consequences that he's describing are starting to become true here. He charts a historical process by which American elite universities began in the 19th century, the late 19th century, to mark out a core element of their curricula as the preserve of a liberal cultivation of knowledge for its own sake. Onto that liberal arts undergraduate base, the graduate schools grafted an increasingly specialised professional training in the distinct disciplines, the end product of which is, he argues, for America, and I think it is true here, is a graduate training whose function is prima facie almost exclusively to reproduce the academy. Okay, so to produce new secondary, new higher education teachers to go on, new researchers, new versions of ourselves who teach you. The doctorate in English or history or modern languages or philosophy trains students to become university teachers of English, history, modern languages, philosophy. So at a time when there are fewer and fewer jobs in academia, as you'll be endlessly told, <laughs> okay, the academics presiding over doctoral education can easily feel in bad faith with you. Humanities departments should be thinking hard, Manant concludes, about making graduate training much less narrow, less exclusionary, more holistic, and more public-facing, okay, more, more directed towards things that lie outside the teaching and research purposes of the university. 
He thinks that they should also resist a temptation to which the, the United States may be peculiarly prone by dint of the grafting of professional specialism onto that broad liberal base, that is, the temptation to oppose whatever is presentist or instrumentalism or instrumental. Usefulness, he says, is not the corrupter of the humanity's intellectual purity. Disinterestedness is perfectly consistent with practical ambition, and practical ambitions are perfectly consistent with disinterestedness. More simply, knowledge just is instrumental. This is a quotation from him. It puts us in a different relationship with the world. Now, a blunter conclusion from his analysis would be that however substantially humanities departments might open themselves out to public engagement, and however worthwhile that change might be, one will not have done enough to secure or even acknowledge the ways in which graduate education in humanities has use value. Now, some clarification of terms is required at this point. Maybe it's a bit late. Maybe it should be right up front. We're clearly not dealing with the Marxist definition of use value as pure non-economic consent to lived need as against economic exchange value. We're dealing with the earlier and still more standard meaning, if you go outside political theory, that is quite the opposite of Marx's handling of the term, literally the value derived from, from practical use. Even in its unreformed condition, higher education in the humanities evidently possesses use value, providing demonstrable benefits to the world. So the skills that today's humanities graduates, you'll be pleased to hear, eventually secure, are widely transferable in ways that Menand maybe underestimates. Humanities students in the main take the knowledge and intellectual training that the AU are given into practical activities, media, businesses, journalism, the civil service, politics, publishing. The link between the training given and how it's used is much less transparent. And you will hear people who say that's the problem. It's joining up the description of the training with what you go on to do afterwards that's trickier much trickier than it is if the course is vocational, like law or medicine, or if you're being trained in the sciences where the exact content of the knowledge goes on being used. But there is demonstrably a product. Those who elect to spend the additional three to five years in postgraduate study in America, it's closer to nine years, are doing so by informal report because they take pleasure in the intellectual experience, despite the poverty of the economic return in many cases. And because they perceive some remaining cultural value in their studies, and because they can reasonably hope that if they don't stay in academia, they will nevertheless not have wasted their time here. They have, after all, become adept at combining realism and optimism towards their own prospects of university employment, cynicism and confidence about the cultural value of what they teach and are taught. Not least they, you can see I'm shuttling between they and you, perhaps it should be you. <laughs> Not least you tend, I think, even now to retain an idea that the humanities matter to individuals and to the wider public life. As Nicholas Dames, do you know who Nick Dames is? Based at Columbia University, he's written some, some very good pieces, not as prominent maybe as yet as someone like um, Stanley Fish, but have a look at what he's written. I've given you this one, Why Bother, in N Plus One. And you can access it online. As he puts it, reviewing Terry Castle's witty examination of the neurotic position of the modern humanities academic, as she describes it in The Professor. Today's humanities professor is good at inhabiting the gap between sincerity and irony, between cultural gatekeeper and cultural rebel, between grandiosity and humility, and she's good at making others feel similarly. But one doesn't enter the academy to become a disillusioned professional, although that will happen along the way. One doesn't enter it to equip businesses with flexible analytic intellects, although that will also happen. One enters it to devote oneself to something greater, and that something greater is, in his warily bold suggestion, rescuing lives giving individuals access to salvational or transformational modes of thought. You know, it interests me, it's always interested me that I think that kind of idiom is easier to adopt in America. It is something about the frankness and aspirational optimism of American public discourse. <laughs> is that right? Those of you American are nodding at me. It's a harder tone to capture in England or to make work for you in England. 
we have a kind of protective irony or distance that goes on in relation to it. Now, he was pitching it quite high. It's consciously a step on or a step up on Manan's recommendation that humanities departments learn to see disinterestedness and practical ambition as compatible. In the context of the long history of anti-instrumentalism in the humanities, what interests me most about Manan's contribution to the debate and Dames's attempt to re-gear it to admit higher ambitions of usefulness, so using knowledge and sympathy gained through study of the humanities to change lives for the better, is that together they confirm a significant shift in attitudes to use value since Barbara Hernstein-Smith wrote in 1988 of anti-utilitarianism operating as a qualifying mark of the contemporary professional humanist and also as his or her perhaps most centrally self-defining ideological stance. As the description I gave earlier of everyday instrumentalism in the academy will have shown is not that humanities scholars look set to become convinced economic instrumentalists, though there are a few, but usefulness no longer figures quite so plainly as the enemy against which the humanist has to characterise him or herself, also entirely at odds with higher cultural and political ideals, and I think, as so often, Jeffrey Hill is, is interestingly conservatively out of step culturally conservatively out of step there. The toning down of anti-instrumentalism, of which I take Reddings, Guillory, Menand and Dames to be a sign, has something to do perhaps with the fact that at least three of them I just don't know in the case of Redding, and I'm not sure who I could ask, have involved themselves quite significantly in the administration of their institutions. Guillory especially has been bracing in his recommendations to humanities departments to rethink their traditional and default hostility to the idea that they have social benefits, as is the next piece I've given you. The humanities disciplines, he says, need more than anything else right now to legitimise themselves in terms of optimization, or more generously social benefit. The sciences by and large have been very successful in justifying their disciplines by means of a notion such as performativity or optimization. But if it's become evident that the sciences that live by this justification can also die by it, this doesn't mean that the legitimation narrative is altogether tainted and should be discarded. Social benefit can be defined far more broadly than in terms of technological payoff or market measures, and without necessarily excluding these terms, knowing how to read shrewdly and write well is no small accomplishment, and is in fact much more valued in the market than we have begun to acknowledge. A cynical explanation for the softening of anti-instrumentalism in recent years would be that modern universities have become so dominated by government criteria for what they do that not to concede something to it would be suicide. But I think there are reasons beyond the obvious for avoiding cynicism without losing sight of the danger that a defence of the humanities' use value may quickly degrade into a defence only of its exchange value, and that the cultural value of humanities scholarship will have been given away in return for no increase in understanding what the relationship can be between cultural value and economic value. So with that danger in sight, the challenge in assessing the validity of the use claim for the humanities seems to me not now to get rid of it, as it so often has been in the past, but to refine the account of what its proper place should be, okay? To refine the account of just how much we give it and how much we refuse to give it. Let's move on to Arnold. Now, amidst so much debate about the propriety and acceptability of use value claims for the humanities, there's been, I think, relatively little sign of an older perception that use value might have importance at some stages and in some kinds of education, but much less in others, nor about the specific problems that the term use raises for the rhetorical act of defending the humanities. So what, what are the kind of problems it puts in our way, if you like, or in fact just the question you've raised, how attractive it makes us to others and to ourselves. And in order to fill out that aspect of the claim, I want to do something that I think might easily be misread, so let me frame it really carefully. I'm going to try a case for a modern Arnoldianism, but it's not an Arnoldianism based on the cultural contract. It's an Arnoldianism based on how he tried to negotiate precisely this claim of 
how much you concede to use value and how much you decline to concede. Secondarily, it's about how he tried to negotiate the problems of a language that is very readily attracted to use. that sort of slips into that mode much more easily than it might be good for us to do. And in that sense, Arnold is oddly underread. If you want that kind of argument, people will routinely, if they're going back to liberal you know, precursors of it, they'll go to Mill, they'll go to Newman, um, but they, and they'll go to Ruskin, but they won't go to Arnold. And yet his contribution on the question of how the university specifically and culture more generally should guard against a narrowly instrumental utilitarianism seems to me the most worked out. Having said that, it's not maybe the most available. And that's not just because he was so strongly German idealist in the way he thought about the self, the best self, right reason, the wisdom of the state. Um, and it's not because he was uninterested in the use value of education. On the contrary, he thought about it as closely as any of his contemporaries, and he wrote about it at more length than any of them. But that writing is dispersed largely into texts that we don't read as much, government reports on education. Okay. Now, when he came to write Culture and Its Enemies, which was the final lecture that he gave in 1867 as Oxford's professor of poetry, and that lecture became the Colonel of Culture on Anarchy, 1869, he was doing it in the immediate aftermath of spending two and a half years putting together an extensive survey of secondary and higher education on the continent in the form of a report to the Education Office with recommendations for the reform of British school and university education. Much of the content of that report concerns his assessment of the place afforded to use value as a criterion for education in the European higher academies. So when he wrote to his mother in early February 1867 that the arguments for culture and its enemies were forming in his mind, that was the immediate context in which they were backburnering. I shall not write a word of the lecture, he said, till my report is fairly done with. So what I'm going to do is to try to argue that his defense of culture has a, subtle and more, a subtler and more complex relationship to use value than its common and casual description as anti-utilitarian allows for, and that we can learn something from it. It comes out of a strenuous attempt to counter the instrumentalist tendencies of political economists in the government to which he and his fellow inspectors were reporting. But it also reflects a growing understanding in the course of his work for government that opposing usefulness to non-usefulness obscures and distorts much of what a sound argument about educational values ought to be about, including breadth of knowledge, recognition of individual aptitudes, the free play of mind, and what without embarrassment he called civilizing the nation. That bit we probably need to let go. Okay. Use and utility for Arnold increasingly became terms not incompatible with but really not relevant to a vision of both education and culture as having to do with the development of the individual and society. And these are precisely the things you just raised. An aim that's understood as ongoing, unpredictable, and that has to be pursued free of the pressures of short-term instrumentalism if it's to be genuinely rational, genuinely intellectual, genuinely beneficial. Now, his prosecution of that argument's made him of obvious interest to those continuing the tradition of anti-instrumentalist arguments for the humanities, but what's tended to happen is that they have latched onto that bit and let the bit that retains use value and retains a place for it and gives it quite clear acknowledgement, they've let that bit go. Unlike many of Arnold's own followers, he wasn't anti-statist. If you know anything about Arnold, you, you will already know this. His concern was with persuading the government of his day to give use value an appropriately basic, that is, first-level place, and then to construct the education that comes thereafter free of that. Much of the political terrain mapped out in the report on schools and universities is going to be immediately familiar to anybody who knows culture and anarchy. Its description of an educational system that has so far completely failed to address the inequalities of class and indeed has reinforced them. 
the explicit concern with the middle or employing class, full of complaints of the ignorance and unreasonableness of those it employs, but not recognising that its own bad instruction is part of the problem. This is what he would call philistinism later in Cultural Anarchy. And the case made for centralising intervention and direct and a direct attack on English anti-statism, you know, the current English notion that the state is an alien intrusive power in the community, not summing up and representing the action of individuals, but thwarting it. None of this was new ground for Arnold. His view that the state should take responsibility for primary education at least, and his sense that the damaging connection between educational systems and class structures had been robustly aired in his earlier report on popular education in France. The rhetoric of the higher education report is in fact much less robustly contestatory and it can afford to be so because he's dealing with secondary and higher education now, not primary. But the shaping significance of his opposition to economic instrumentalism in higher education was no less strong. Now, I'm going to just um, pass over in summary, um, uh, but I think that's enough really for, for current purposes the background of his opposition to instrumentalism as he saw it happening in government. The most important aspect of his was his opposition to a man called Robert Lowe, who was a Liberal MP, the author of what's called the Revised Code of Education in 1862, which stands out in the history of education for being the first serious introduction of the notion of payment by results. And Arnold was really very bright, writing to the popular sorry, to the popular press and to you know to the main you know, newspaper organs of the day and taking on effectively his superior in government. It's a very risky thing to do. And he did it openly, frankly, trenchantly, and he's largely responsible for forming a coherent opposition within Parliament. He didn't get his way, he got kind of concessions, but the core of, of payment by results nevertheless went through. That's an important background um, to culture and anarchy. But it's nevertheless interesting that when you get to culture and anarchy, the place given to anti-instrumentalism is much more oblique, much more indirect. And that, I think, reflects a perception that use value is genuinely not the point, not the right ground of engagement regarding educational aims, and that giving it too much prominence is, in fact, going to damage the terrain that you're on. Okay, so we're in kind of tricky territory where he needs to recognise use value as primary and there, but nevertheless kind of control the space that is given in the account of higher education. So if you read Arnold's report on primary schools, you find an author who's fully prepared to talk in terms of simple utility, especially when standards of education are bad. So look at what he has to say about France in the 1830s, post-war period, when the education system is really in tatters. He gives it a very prominent place. He says you need to get literacy back up, you need to get weights and measures properly understood, and there are, there's a kind of a particular mess in that area. But even in these circumstances, he hardly ever talks in terms of mere use value. And you can see him attacking systems like the Swiss education whenever he sees them as overly uh, overly focused on instrumentalism, economic benefits. So he talks about the regnant Swiss conception of secondary instruction being not a liberal but a commercial one, not culture and training of the mind, but what will be of immediate palpable utility in some practical calling. And you can hear it's not a sneer, but it's certainly a strong disagreement. Now, um, as you carry through, the, one can do kind of complicated things with the last chapter of that report, but I actually want to move on to culture and anarchy, because if the report on schools and universities is downgrading talk of utility, but keeping it there, at first face, culture and anarchy looks as if it's effacing it all together, but it isn't quite. Though most of culture and anarchy puts considerations of utility right to one side, they're rather a telling absence, a consistent refusal to engage on that terrain. And one notices that they're absent, the more strongly because they are there in the preface. He opens, in effect, with a parody of utility. 
a famous attack on the reductive idea of culture identified with the liberal orator John Bright, which associates it with a smattering of Greek and Latin, useless in any obvious instrumental sense, but covertly instrumental as a sign of gentleman education and short as a demarcator of class. And he then goes on to make a particular attack, and it was a mistake, it came back to haunt him, on Mr. Oscar Browning, assistant master at Eton. The usefulness of the true advocates of culture depends, Arnold argues, upon our being able to clear away the sort of understanding which Mr. Browning, the Mr. Zasmir, had propagated in a recent article for the Quarterly Review. That is, the idea that education consists of keeping boarding houses for boys, training them for competitive examinations which their parents care about intensely, but they, the boys, are in all likelihood not at all caring about, and selling a great many school books to the parents. This is the kind of educational experience, even at the upper end of the class system, that perpetuates the idea of culture as a mere acquisition of mental rules and habits. Our task, he says, must be to break the stranglehold of habit, to convince those who mechanically serve some stock notion or operation and therefore go astray that it's not culture's work or aim to give the victory to some rival fetish, instrumentalism, but simply to turn a free and fresh stream of thought upon the whole matter in question. Now, he really did regret it because Mr. Browning went and wrote a devastating review of the report on schools and universities for the quarterly review, which made it pretty clear that Arnold had underestimated him. I'm going to move now to the manuscript of culture and its, en culture and its enemies. You can see it. It's in Balliol College, Oxford. I tried to get photographs of it to show you a while back, but they had a dripping tap <laughs> over the boxes of manuscript materials. Everything was in panic mode, and they sort of pushed them out, and access was not possible. So I need to go back now that they've presumably um, preserved culture and anarchy from the dripping tap of modernity. Now, if you go to the manuscript of culture and its enemies, you can see Arnold repeatedly revising the word use in favour of something else, really kind of struggling over what remit to give the word. Now is the moment for culture to be of use, the first draft reads, but then he scores it out and he replaces it with the term service. Now, my first thought was that he was replacing it with a more Christian word, something like Christian service, you know, doing what's best to others. But I don't think he is doing that. If you think about the secular remit of his notion of culture, it's importantly something which suggests a um, you know, secular uh, responsibility, outward lookingness to others. A passage cancelled entirely from the final text bothers repeatedly over the same word, Sonia Sheed. Bishop Wilson is careful to warn the seeker of light against this weight of his waste of his light. Just that it may all be used, no, be applied, scrubbed out, no, be used, he reinstates, for no end, but that he may better see and not miss his way. Just that it may all be used, scrubs it out, serve simply to make reason and the will of God prevail. He struggles especially hard with the wording of a direct assertion towards the end of the lecture that the purpose of culture is not just to make all live in an atmosphere of sweetness and light, but also, as the final text reads, to use ideas as it, culture, uses them itself, freely nourished and not bound by them. He really wrestles with that particular use. So you get to fit all for a use, scrubbed out, use and shape, doubly scrubbed out, through ideas, judgments and watchwords, even if it's even its own as freely it uses and shapes them through itself. He scrubs the whole thing out. There are about three layers of scrubbing out going on here. It's noticeable that function isn't one of the alternatives he seems to have considered, despite it standing famously in preference to use in the title of the 1864 essay, The Function of Criticism at the Present Time. And that's pretty obviously because in Culture and Anarchy, the function, the word function is associated with the uncultured functionary. How he asks, shall we convince the barbarian that we do not want for ourselves his preeminency and function? We want him and others uninterested in the cause of public and national culture to believe that there are, you know, vital things here, um, vital goods. In just one place, he lets the word utility stand. 
The definition of culture near the start of culture and anarchy has three stages. True culture is neither mere curiosity nor only a study of perfection, but a joining of the two in a culture possessed by the scientific passion as well as by the passion of doing good. When he upholds this third conjoined model of curiosity with the study of perfection, he makes it clear that he's recommending it because curiosity would be selfish, petty and unprofitable if it didn't have the addition of the great and plain utility of the study of perfection. Now, one way of reading that, as um, my recently retired colleague Nick Shrimpton does, is to say that it's an argument with utilitarianism, but not an exclusion of it. Another way is to say, I think, that exceptionally in cultural and anarchy, this is a moment where Arnold chooses to meet economic instrumentalism on its own linguistic ground, but it takes one of its favoured terms, utility, and it makes it do something which is completely unquantifiable, unmeasurable. How would you measure the utility of perfection? Go to. So the very shadowy place permitted in most of culture and anarchy to the idea that culture may have use value is not, I think, an accident. It's him wrestling to give it an appropriate place, getting rid of it. And as you can see, he doesn't entirely get rid of it. It wasn't an easy process because the language of use comes very readily to hand. It's a good example of the kind of mechanical or merely habitual thinking that he thought it was culture's role to expunge. In place of the occasional claims found in the manuscript for culture's utility, the final text consistently stresses that view of culture which has become famous and which I will only give you in summary, I'm sure you know it. Culture as a lifelong process of seeking perfection in the Socratic sense, the free exercise of intelligence and reason, the cultivation and not just the mechanical learning of the best that has been thought and said, the pursuit of sweetness and light. That last one is notoriously unsatisfactory as a description of culture. Nobody quotes sweetness and light now except with you know, either sort of ironic distance so far that it's barely at your fingertips or uh, you know, acid irony, really. And that brings into focus, I think, an additional problem faced by all advocates of the humanities, and Arnold's a very good kind of precursor for the problems we still meet now. How do you find a language of valuation and validation that captures the qualities of the humanities without becoming vulnerable to overuse, okay, without becoming something that you yourself instrumentalise by leaning on it too heavenly to do the work of advocacy for you. Succinctly, you can't. It's not possible to do it, okay. Arnold, who succeeded as well as anyone for a time, also and inevitably failed. So I've given you the famous passage um, explaining sweetness and light. The Greek word, euphoria, a finely tempered nature, gives exactly the notion of perfection as culture brings us to conceive it. A harmonious perfection, a perfection in which the characters of beauty and intelligence are both present, which unites the two noblest of things. As Swift, who of one of the two, at any rate, had himself all too little, in other words, too little sweetness, most happily calls them in his battle of the books, the two noblest of things, sweetness and light. The Euphuies is the man who tends towards sweetness and light. The Euphuies is precisely our Philistine. The immense spiritual significance of the Greeks is due to their having been inspired with this central and happy idea of the essential character of human perfection. And Mr. Bright's misconception of culture as a smattering of Greek and Latin comes itself after all from this wonderful significance of the Greeks having affected the very machinery of our education and is in itself a kind of homage to it. Lionel Trilling gives a footnote on sweetness and light in his classic 1939 study of Arnold and he just gets the problem in a, in a trillion phrase. This phrase has fallen into such disrepute that it has come to mean, he says, a smirking, simpering flabbiness of attitude, a kind of Pollyanna hypocrisy, clearly not what Arnold was aiming at. Scarcely, scarcely less negatively, this is Stephen Collini in the past master's volume on Arnold, 
It is unfortunate that the words sweetness and light now have a somewhat unctuous, almost genteel, even anemic air about them. They suggest too much the mild uplift dispensed by that kind of wet do-gooder who never seems to have felt the pull of any real human appetites. The big question, did Arnold realise there was a problem? Not immediately, or you assume he wouldn't have used it at all. But And I, I can't see that anyone's ever written about this. If you look in his letters and uh, the, the kind of the, the references to what's going on in his life, memoirs, biography, after this period, there are pretty rapidly signs that he came to hold a kind of distance on it himself. And that he understood that the words might be liable to parody, that they might be liable to a kind of devaluation, a rapid devaluation, as well as more gratifyingly that they become common currency. So in early December 1869, he writes to his mother that Dizzy, it's Disraeli to you and me, has been in high force and agreeable at a dinner party late last night and leaned across the table and teasingly remarked, sweetness and light, I call that Mr. Arnold, eh? It's one of several instances in Arnold's letters after cultural anarchy in which the phrase sweetness and light is made to perform a kind of rhetorical flourish, acknowledging its own success but also admitting a hint of irony at Arnold's expense. The irony and the flourish grow over the years. So when you first meet it in Arnold's correspondence, he uses it straight-faced. He's writing a letter to the prison reformer William Tallack later the same year that he'd first used Sweetness and Light, warning that no amount of philanthropic energy or vigour of mind in the reforming cause will be sufficient to what I call sweetness and light. Something more is needed. But by 1870, he's starting to pick up a whiff of irreverence towards the phrase. So he comes to Oxford to the commemoration in June, and he watches James Bryce and Lord Salisbury, students, performing a student play in which Arnold and his father are mildly ragged. Salisbury told me afterwards it had been suggested to him that he ought to have addressed me as via dulcissime et lucidissime. He's a dangerous man. And not long afterwards, he's become frankly ironic about it. So he writes a reference for a housekeeper in which he says uh, he would think I was pressing him with too much sweetness and light, or I would add to my account of Mrs. Tuffer that she's remarkably pleasing manners and so forth. So he becomes well aware pretty quickly that there's a risk associated with becoming common currency. It's not surprising that it's Disraeli that first makes him kind of conscious of it. If you remember Disraeli, those constant suggestions that Disraeli is, there's something Jewishly vulgar in the, in the kind of prejudicial way in which it's so often represented of him that he's too happy to pick on the commercially useful or the, um, you know, the kind of pleasingly popular. So Arnold writes um, that he's really pleased by the way in which culture and anarchy has been improved by giving it chapter headings like sweetness and light, Hellenism and so forth. But at the same time and in private, he's acknowledging that it might be a real liability for him. So when Disraeli again, now Lord Beaconsfield, meets him at a dinner party in 1881, and tells him that he's the only living Englishman who's become a classic in his own lifetime. He's inclined to be sceptical. The fact is, this is on your page, the fact is that what I've done in establishing a number of current phrases, such as philistinism, sweetness and light, and all that is just the sort of thing to strike him. He had told Lady Early, that's the hostess, before I came that he thought it was a great thing to do. And when she answered that she thought it was rather a disadvantage, for people got hold of my phrases and thought they knew all about my work, he answered, never mind, it's a great achievement. By 1881, when Arnold agrees to substitute for Lord Derby as the speaker at the opening of the University of Liverpool session, he's prepared to mock himself publicly and robustly. Okay, so he says, you were to have an address from an eminent man of science. You have in his stead, many people will tell you, a nearly worn out man of letters with a frippery of phrases about sweetness and light, seeing things as they really are, knowing the best that has been thought and said in the world, which have never had very much solid meaning and have now quite lost the gloss and charm of novelty. I wish I could promise to change my old phrases for new ones. I wish I saw a prospect that within the term of my life, which can yet remain to me, 
phrases such as sweetness and light, seeing things as they really are, were likely to cease to sum up, to my mind, crying needs for our nation. But I fear there is no chance of this happening. What has been the burden of my song hitherto will probably have to be the burden of it till the end. So who, if you like, semi-comically condemns himself to the role of the man who has to go on using these phrases that he's put into public currency at the same time that he knows that they've become tired, have lost their gloss. There are lots of ways of trying to rescue sweetness and light. Um, one of them which I'm going to spare you is to go deeply into its history and to think about the way in which it signals, not just through Swift, but right back into classical antiquity, argument about the goods of culture. It's not there just to signal what is attractive or what's good or what's valuable about it. There are big debates about what, whether what you want is illumination or whether you want is just pleasure, okay, something to just sort of a bread and circuses kind of version of culture. Um, that's one way of doing it. And I think actually to do that is to signal something else about it. One of the reasons it worked for Arnold was that he knew that history. So to him, that phrase brought with it a kind of passport, if you like, of culture that came with it. But it doesn't do that for everyone, and it certainly doesn't do that now. Irony isn't normally one of the, way, normally one of the ways of rescuing or trying to rescue sweetness and light. Um, and I rather doubt it can work for all of us, but it is, I think, at least fair to Arnold to note that it was an irony he possessed for himself. Okay, so sweetness and light, I think, well, let me finish on that, the, the, um, finish the Arnold part of this debate on that. If too much is packed into it by historical intellectual argument on the one hand that isn't available even to his first audience, let alone us, and if it's just too glossy and too quickly loses its gloss on its others, there is one other way in which you can defend it, which isn't just about irony, and that's to say that there's something about the acknowledged lexical incompetence that itself is doing a kind of work. In other words, sweetness and light maybe marks the place at which no terms are going to sustain their value for very long in an argument about what are the goods of culture. So it marks out certain things that Arnold wants us to understand are valuable, but which are going to depreciate as soon as they pass into a language of critical appreciation or evaluation, let alone quantitative measurement. If that argument has any purchase, I think it matters that Arnold himself came to feel acutely the phrase's vulnerability and later to employ a certain degree of irony about it on his own behalf as part of a defense of culture that's ongoing, not rigid. Okay, you may have become alarmed by now. I'm not arguing that Arnold offers a way out of our present difficulties, as he once famously put it for his own time. Uh, it's been said often and rightly that there is too much about culture and anarchy that is unpalatable for a defense of culture in our own time and simply unfeasible. Also about the use of the, the also about the location of the university as the place for a defense of that culture in the 21st century. But I am trying to make a case for an Arnoldian modernism with respect to use value that can take up the task of defending the free play of mind in ways that aren't simply hostile to instrumentalism, so that they can give use value a basic place, but also defend higher education in ways that aren't confined by it or give more than a small part of our valuation to it. So I guess I'm on exactly the terrain that you were mapping out a minute ago in your question. It's worth asking, I think, why the Arnoldian cultural contract proved such an effective argument for government policy for as long as it did. It lasts at least into the 1960s when it's put under pressure by expansion and the Wilsonian emphasis on technology. But arguably, it really lasts up until the 1980s, when it's definitively superseded by more aggressive commercial models. But nothing in the humanities language of justification since, I think, has dealt better, or anywhere near as effectively, with the problem of how and in what measure to recognize the value of practical ends without making them a defining or a distorting purpose. For all that's unworkable and undesirable now in Arnold's understanding of culture, 
cultural anarchy, I think, still has a lot to offer on the question of what should be our response to the pressures of economic instrumentalism in government, both as a diagnosis of a problem and as an extension to the range of ways by which we might react. <laughs>